0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back Team Cardio Nerds. Dan Ambinder here. Thanks so much for joining us on this spectacular Cardio Nerds Cardio Obstetrics Cruise it's been a hot minute since we released our last Cardio OB episode, so just a quick recap. We tackled normal pregnancy physiology with Dr. Garima Sharma, heart failure and peripartum cardiomyopathy with Dr. Julie Damp, pregnancy and coronary artery disease with Dr. Melissa Wood, pregnancy and arrhythmia with Dr. Andrea Rousseau, pregnancy and hypertension with Dr. Candice Silversides, pregnancy and aortic disorders with Dr. Napur Narula, and hypertensive disorders of pregnancy with Dr. Jennifer Louie. And we have so many more topics to cover as part of our Cardio OB series. But in this special Cardio B Patient Perspective episode, we have the absolute honor to meet and hear the stories of three incredible women heart champions, Prothea Dennis, Brandy Taylor, and Ellen Robin. And we get to talk to these women in the presence of two legendary leaders in cardiovascular medicine, Dr. Nanette Wanger and Dr. Sharon Hayes. We are all in for an incredible treat. In addition to this episode being featured on our Cardio OB topic page, you can also find this episode in our patient and family perspective collection, which features several moving and meaningful patient and family stories that remind us of why we do what we do. And if you're enjoying the episode or show, please consider supporting the show by rating or reviewing us on your favorite podcast platform. And think of somebody who would enjoy the podcast and spread the Cardio Nerds' word. If they are new to podcasting, just hop on their phone and show them how to subscribe. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Relevant disclosures can be found in the episode show notes. And all CardioNerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed by CardioNerds.
1: Hey CardioNerds, thanks for joining us for this very unique and special discussion. As you will remember from earlier episodes, heart disease is the leading cause of death in women. We Cardiners are dedicated to raising awareness and impacting change in this area of great need. Everything we do begins and ends with our patients at the bedside. And so we are thrilled to be collaborating with Women Heart, a patient-centered organization that supports, educates, and advocates for the millions of women living with or at risk for heart disease. And as we work to raise awareness, what better way than to learn directly from patients who are also women heart champions. And so we have with us Perthia Dennis, Brandy Taylor, and Alan Robin, as well as a trailblazing leaders in the field of women's cardiovascular health, Dr. Sharon Hayes and Dr.
0: Nanette Wenger. And I have the absolute honor and undeserved privilege to introduce Dr. Sharon Hayes. Dr. Hayes is professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic. After completing medical school at Northwestern University, Dr. Hayes brought her talents to Rochester, Minnesota to train in internal medicine and cardiology. Dr. Hayes' research focuses on sex and gender differences in cardiovascular disease and prevention. She is an absolute leader and advocate for women's cardiovascular health, healthcare inequities, and professional diversity. She is the Director of Diversity and Inclusion at the Mayo Clinic. She founded and practices at the Women's Heart Clinic at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Hayes also directs the SCAD research program team at the Mayo Clinic, and she is also the medical advisor and member of the board of directors for Women's Heart. I could go on and on, but to list all her roles and accolades would leave us little time for our actual discussion. But personally, for us, Dr. Hayes has been a tremendous mentor and advisor. She is a key member of our Narratives and Cardiology Council to help us promote inclusion within cardiology. Dr. Hayes, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for all that you do and especially for all of your work in designing and planning this very discussion. Dr. Hayes, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much, Dan. It is great to be here because I think that everyone on this call knows that this is something that's very dear to my heart. And I have the honor of introducing Dr. Nanette Wenger, my, I guess, co-conspirator in crime and many things. Dr. Wenger's life and career has been nothing short of extraordinary, and for more about her life and work, I'd refer to the excellent Cardio Nerds episode in honor of her 90th birthday and the wonderful biography, complete with photos, published in the American Journal of Cardiology in 2003 by Dr. William Roberts. But right now, she is professor of medicine, division of cardiology at Emory University School of Medicine, and she has an active clinical practice at Grady Memorial Hospital. So active, it puts us all to shame, those of us who are in practice. She's a native New Yorker from Long Island. She went to Harvard Medical School. She trained at Mount Sinai. And in 1958, she moved with her beloved husband, Dr. Julius Wenger, to Atlanta. She joined Grady Memorial Hospital and served as chief of cardiology at Grady for many years. In segregated Atlanta, she became a powerful civil rights leader in the 60s, which is a whole nother topic that I hope you will cover sometime. She became a full professor in 1971. So she's been a full professor for 50 years. Think about that. In that time, she founded two subspecialties of cardiology, both cardiovascular disease in women and geriatric cardiology. And because of her pioneer status in medicine, she was often a first or an only in medicine and cardiology. But because of Dr. Wenger, we are not onlys anymore. That's pretty amazing. She's authored or co-authored over 1,600 scientific and review articles and book chapters, and that's and counting. She had over 20 peer-reviewed articles just in 2020. She's a PI of numerous multicenter research studies and has earned the highest award that is given from the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, both U.S. and international. Multiple women of the year, multiple years, named lectureships, a leader of women in medicine. Because of today's topic, I think she's not only important to me, but she is so important to patients. The women Hearts Annual Awards is named after Dr. Wenger, the Wenger Awards. She's really important to women in medicine as a role model, a mentor, a leader, a selfie taker, and now on Twitter. She is a mother of three professional daughters and a proud grandmother. Um, so she's important to me, important to women, physicians, and patients. I am always honored to work with and learn from my friend, colleague, and mentor. And who better to speak about heart disease in women?
3: Sharon, thank you so much for that deserved introduction. But. The part of it that makes me very proud relative to today is my long-term association with women heart because Thea, Ellen, and Brandy, whom you will shortly meet, are the three women heart champions of whom I am very proud. They are the triple threat. Individually, they have advocated for their own diagnosis to be cared for in the medical system have adhered to their management, queried it when they were concerned that it might not be appropriate, begun and worked with the organization Women Heart. So in addition to their personal diagnosis and management issues, they have provided advocacy and support to so many women. As we will hear from their stories and from what we know, Women remain underdiagnosed, undertreated, and therefore underrepresented in the benefits that we all have accrued in cardiology. So that, let us go to the stars of our program, Thea, Ellen, and Brandy.
0: Yes, as Dr. Wenger just mentioned, we're joined today by a triple threat to women's heart disease with three incredible women heart champions, Berthea Dennis, or Thea Dennis as she likes to be called, Brandy Taylor, and Ms. Ellen Robin. So I'll just ask you all to introduce yourselves. How about Thea? Why don't you take it away with telling us a little bit about yourself and your favorite pre-COVID activity or hobby and your pandemic era COVID safe activity and hobby?
4: Hi, my name is Portia Dennis and I am a woman living with heart disease as well as a woman heart champion. I suffered a heart attack and a stroke double whammy in 2017. But I've been involved with women in heart disease for many years. I'm volunteering now in the medical field, but I am a medical frontliner. My pre COVID activity was I like the line dance, visit with friends, work in the healthcare field, but post COVID. I was advised not to work with my heart disease and other comorbidities that I have, but I still go and spend time with my grandkids. I have 14 of them. And as well as my girls group we had, we're called the Shady Ladies.
0: That is absolutely amazing. Theo. Yeah, welcome, welcome, welcome. And Ms. Ellen Robin, would you like to introduce yourself? Tell us about your favorite pre-COVID and post-COVID activities?
5: Yes, hi, I'm Ellen Robin. I am a woman with heart disease as well. I had a SCAD heart attack, spontaneous coronary artery dissection heart attack, February 21st, 2010. So I just celebrated my 11th SCAD anniversary last week. And I work full time. I work in healthcare. I'm on the administrative side. And prior to COVID, I had a lot of things that I did. I was very social out there with all of my friends, hanging out taking long walks on the beach, walking in the Susan G. Komen 60 miles in three days. I've done that for 12 years and going out to dinner, getting my hair done, getting my nails done. I was very busy. And post COVID, I now do my own nails. I will no longer have to go spend $50 every three weeks. I can do them myself. And I've become very active in this nail dipping community. It's crazy. Actually, I've probably spent more money on product than I would getting my nails done, but it's been very fun. So that's become my hobby post-puppet.
0: All right, Miss Ellen, nice to meet you. And then lastly, but not leastly, Miss Brandi Taylor. Would you tell us a little bit about yourself and your pre and post-COVID favorite hobbies?
6: Sure. Hello, everyone. Halka. My name is Brandy Taylor, and I'm from the Epi Nation of San Isabel. My tribe is located in the mountains of San Diego, and I've been part of Women Heart since 2006. My son was a year old, and actually it's because I had heart failure when I had my son when I was pregnant and had an emergency C-section. And then two years later, I actually was listed for a heart transplant and received one on June 13th, 2008, and it actually was Friday the 13th. So Friday 13th is my lucky day from now on. Pre-COVID, my son and I would travel every weekend to different traditional gatherings and powwows. And ever since this pandemic, they've stopped those. That's been hard. Now that we're home all the time, I'm trying different recipes and crockpots. I mean, cooking. And I'm not a cooker I'm trying to do that type of stuff and, um, reading books and there's a lot of Netflix going on. That's about it. My son helps his grandparents, which is good. And he's keeping busy online classes. So I can't wait for this pandemic to be over with. And we can move on. Thank you.
1: Thank you all for sharing a little of yourselves and your stories. We start off by asking about you as a person and your hobbies in the beginning, because we think it really helps us contextualize where disease starts and how it impacts you as a person, your family, your environment. But one of the reasons why I think Women Heart is so effective is that our champions were all patients themselves. So Ellen, perhaps starting with you, would you mind sharing your story with heart disease? You said you're just celebrating your 11th scad Yes.
5: Yes, 11 years ago, my life changed as I knew it. It was a Sunday morning, a very sunny day. I live in San Diego as well. And I, early Sunday morning, went and got my nails done. I live up in North County of San Diego. So I drove down about 35 miles north of my house into San Diego where my husband and I, at the time, we owned a rental property, a duplex. So I was doing an open house and I had my open house that day. There was people coming in and out and we we're getting towards the end of the day. I was doing it to about four in the afternoon. It was probably about 3.15, 3.20 at the time. A woman walked in and for some strange reason, I got very agitated as soon as I saw her. I don't know what, she just made me very agitated. And she started asking me questions and I was getting really upset at her. And I just told her to just go look around and she left. We were in the living room. She walked out of the living room into the other part of the house. When she went into the other room, the front door opened and an elephant walked in and sat on my chest. That's what it felt like. It was really loud. I still remember it. It was so loud. It rung in my ears, the sound in my chest. I was standing up and I almost fell down. And had to grab onto this chair... When that happened, I thought, wow, that was really weird. I didn't know what it was. I started feeling a little bit of nauseam, dizzy. I started sweating profusely. And this was in February in San Diego. It was cool for us. It was about 65 degrees. I started sweating. And so I just thought I knew something was wrong. But yet, on the other hand, I thought I could will this away. It will go away. Just take deep breaths. I thought, let me go walk outside, get some fresh air. So I walked outside and I just was still feeling very unhappy. And then from that point, I knew I needed help. So I thought I better call somebody. I called my husband. I probably should have called 911 in retrospect, but I called my husband and I started telling my symptoms and he was on the computer and he's searching my symptoms and he told me I was having a heart attack. And of course I'm like, no, I'm not having a heart attack. There's no way I'm having a heart attack. I don't have time to have a heart attack. I have things to do. And this isn't going to happen. And he's going on and on. You need to call 911. And I was being very stubborn. At the time, I realized this. I did not know this, but now in retrospect of what I've learned from about heart disease, agitation is a sign of having a heart attack. I was very agitated. And I told him that I'm not calling 911. And he pulled the crying card on me. He started crying and told me that I needed to call 911. And if I didn't, he was. I told him that he better not because I wasn't going to be here. I was going to leave. So finally, I gave in to him and I said, I'll go to the hospital. In the meantime, I started to close the house up. That woman was still in the house. She knew something was wrong. She wanted to drive me to the hospital. I wouldn't let her because as far as I knew, she could have been a serial killer and I didn't want to get in her car. I was finding every excuse. And then from there, I finally ended up driving myself to the hospital, which is a big no-no now. I got to the hospital and when I got there, there was a window with a sign saying that if you're having chest pains, please go to the front of the line. And I didn't want to cut in front of people because I'm a rule follower. And my husband was in my Bluetooth in my ear and he's yelling at me. And it was so loud that he was yelling that the guy in front heard him saying, go to the front of the window. And so this man made me go to the front of the window and got there. They took my EKG and it was normal. So I'm like, oh, see, this is ridiculous. I'm not having a heart attack. But in the meantime, they took my blood work and the troponins did come back that I was having a heart attack. So that was devastating to me because I didn't understand why this was happening to me. I was pretty healthy. And then got admitted to the hospital because it was a Sunday and I was stable. They said that, that they would get me in the cath lab probably the next day. And then the next morning happened. Monday mornings are busy in the cath lab. They said that they couldn't get me into the cath lab and that they'd get me in the next day. And in the meantime, I had another heart attack Monday night, but I stabilized again. So they waited till the next morning. And that's when in the cath lab is where they saw that I had a spontaneous coronary artery dissection. And at that time, when I had my heart attack, physicians didn't know as much about SCAD and the the cardiologist tried to put in a stent and i ended up spiraling and tearing all the way down my circumflex and ended up with four stents was in the cath lab for almost 3 hours and i was better after that a couple days later i was discharged went to see my cardiologist and at that point is when the cardiologist told me it was a fluke go on with your life that's what i did i went on with my life and about 9 months later is when i realized i woke up one morning going wow, how could I just go on with my life? I had a heart attack. I needed answers. I needed questions to be answered. And at that time, I found Women Heart online support group, found a bunch of women that had the same type of heart disease that I did, SCAD, and found Women Heart at that point. And that's where my whole life started changing, learning about heart disease, learning about the fact that you can be an advocate for yourself and that just because a doctor tells you something doesn't mean that you cannot question it.
1: Wow, Ellen, thank you so much for so eloquently describing that story and your experience with us. Yeah, I've been on the cath side of SCAD, I've been on the ICU side of SCAD, the clinic follow-up visit side of SCAD, but to hear it from your perspective and see it from your eyes, that imagery is such a different level of understanding. And to hear your own reluctance that, no, I'm healthy. I don't have heart disease. And the devastation that you described when you found out that your triple was elevated and something was amiss. And then the amount of support that you got through Women Heart really, I think, underscores the value of work that you and Thea and Brandy do through the organization. Thea, I heard you say that you had a double whammy. Would you mind sharing your story?
4: Yes. On October 29th, 2017, I woke up at four o'clock in the morning and I couldn't walk. I had what I called sea legs. If I tried to stand up, it was like I was on the ship. I yelled upstairs to my daughter, who was living with me at that time, to come down. And she never did come down for a little while. And my little doggie is the one who went upstairs and got her. He scratched on that door until she came down. And so she finally came down. And she said, Mom, what's wrong? I said, I can't walk. She said, what do you mean you can't walk? I said, I can't walk. So I said, you're going to, have to take me to the hospital, which is literally around the corner from my house. Literally. She got me to the car. We get to the hospital. They came out. They took me back. About an hour later, he came in. He said, I got good and bad news for you. And I said, what's the good news? He said, well, you're not dead. I said, uh, I can tell that I'm talking to you. He said, but you've had a stroke. I said, I probably figured that because I am in healthcare. I'm a nurse practitioner myself and been a nurse for over 20 some years. He said, but you also had a heart attack. I said, I had a what? I had no chest pains, no anything. They took me to the cath lab. I was 80% occluded in the LAD. Now, mind you, I'm a nurse. I'm like, is that the Widowmaker? Because your whole schooling goes out the window when it's you. So he said, no, it's not the Widowmaker, but. It was very occluded at that 80%. So I got stinted, got put on medications and everything, but I had to do rehab because I still couldn't walk from the stroke. I wouldn't let them send me to a rehab place. I did it at home. But even previously to that, two weeks before I had the heart attack and the stroke, I was at Mayo Clinic. And I remember getting off the plane, coming home, and I was a little short of breath, and I was walking the plank, as I call it, the runway. And a lady said, are you okay? And I was like, yes. But I was talking to my friend, and I was telling my friend on the phone, I said, we just landed, but I'm a little short of breath. And when I get out here to the car, I'm probably going to have my daughter take me to the ER. So I'm still talking to her. And by the time I got my baggage and got out there, I said, I ain't having chest pain or nothing. I'm going home. And that's what I did. I went home. I dismissed my symptoms, which we should never do. And even previous to that, I was having palpitations. I did the 24-hour heart monitor. I did the vent monitor. I did all that. And the cardiologist I was seeing told me, he said, they're trivial. I said, they're trivial. These are palpitations I'm having. What do you mean they're trivial? They're not trivial when I had them because it was like a panic attack. And every time I went to the ER, they was like, oh, you're having a panic attack. Um, just try to do these breathing exercises, think this way and do all this and do all that. But I was diabetic, family history of heart disease, hypertensive. And I'm like, something is not right. And actually, how I got involved with Women Heart is because I was also doing my thesis on women in heart disease. And I got a lot of information through Dr. Winger's peer reviewed articles, as well as Lori. And I said, if I ever met those two, I was going to let them know my thesis was with them. They got me through. So I got to meet both of them at Winger through Women Heart. But I wanted to advocate for women because I was dismissed. You're having a panic attack. You're having GERD. And I'm like, no, this ain't GERD. This ain't a panic attack. So we have to advocate for ourselves. And it's, it's a process,
1: but we do it. Thea, thank you for sharing your story. And there were three things that I took away from that. One is particularly your experience as being a nurse practitioner, taking care of patients. How often do we hear that somebody has an X percent blockage in an artery? But your response was different. You said schooling goes out the window when it's you, and maybe we should have the same kind of feeling when it's our patient. The second was, uh, as I say, a dog is a woman's best friend. I'm so glad that your dog was there to help you out. And I guess in a not too dissimilar way that Ellen's husband was there to make sure that she didn't trivialize her own symptoms. And on that note, the third thing I took away, and I think a really important note, is how symptoms and presentations tend to be trivialized in women especially. And you know, when we spoke to each of you, Ellen, Thea, Brandy, we heard these common themes of how your symptoms, the things that you told your doctors you were having was trivialized, you know, starting off early in my career. That's a really important takeaway for me. Brandy, I'd love to hear from you. And would you mind sharing how Friday the 13th became your lucky day?
6: Oh yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll get into that too. <laughs> I was 32 years old and I was in about my eight months of pregnancy and I was very tired, very weak, shortness of breath. I couldn't lay all the way down. Just incredibly weak, and in our community out here with the tribe, the women are very strong. And this is my first pregnancy. My mom had five kids, and everyone was telling me just to suck it up. And you know, you're pregnant, but I knew something was wrong. And so we went to the Indian Health Clinic, and they said we'll give you an inhaler, maybe you have asthma. We'll give you some sleep meds. And I knew no, that couldn't be it. So that was on a Thursday. That whole weekend, I was getting worse. My mom took me actually that Friday to another hospital that's about an hour from us in the Escondido area. And the emergency doctor there had a wife that was pregnant as well, too. And so he absolutely didn't take me serious. He said, you're pregnant. He didn't do any blood work, nothing, and sent me home. Well, that weekend, I was really slowly dying of heart failure. So Monday, my mother took me to a better hospital down in the San Diego area. And they admitted me right away into the intensive care unit. And there was a nurse that watched my son and another one watched me. So they monitored me for three days. And then they told me that his heart rate was getting less and less. And it was probably best to do an emergency C-section. And when they said that I heard code blue over the loudspeaker in the hospital. And I just remember laying there thinking we need to pray for that family. That's sad. And then all of a sudden the doors blew open and it was for me. So they yanked me out, took me to the area where they do the emergency C-section. No one was allowed in there with me at all. So it was me and my son. And then he was born. And the one thing that I just wanted to hear the whole time was like, please let me hear him cry. And they, he did loud, but I wasn't able to see him. They took him straight to the, the NICU, which, you know, scared me. They took me back to the intensive care unit. And luckily my mom was able to follow him and she was able to take pictures of him for me. And I didn't get to see him for about four or five days. So it was just a lot of struggle in the hospital and he was able to go home first. And um, I was a single mom. So my mom actually took him. So I was in the hospital for a few weeks, went home. They had me on different medications, that type of stuff. And that was October when he was born. And then in March, they wanted to put in a pacemaker and a defibrillator. So they tried doing that three times, but the leads kept being pushed out. I wasn't able to actually physically carry my son. He was either in a stroller or people had to place him on my lap for me. They had to pick them up out of the crib for me. Luckily, you know, I have a really good support system. I have my mom and my sisters. So after going through all that, in and out of the hospital constantly, and uh, the defibrillator did work though twice. It did bring me back, which was like being kicked by a horse <laughs> or lightning struck. But uh, finally, it was about two years after they decided that I was getting worse. So I wasn't being able to handle the medicine or any, anything else. I did try cardio mems, which was uh, a study. I was the first one in San Diego actually to do it. And by chance, I actually was honored with the Wagner Award years later, because they actually used that device. So that was a positive thing. At that point, I was willing to try any kind of special devices, any experimental stuff. But um, finally, it was April in 2008, they decided to list me. My tribe did a big leapy ceremony, which is considered a healing ceremony. Because at that time, I felt like I was a candle with my flame just being blown out. It was lower and lower. And I have a two year old son, and I was willing to do anything. So we had singers and medicine men, everyone came out and prayed and they asked what I wanted. And a lot of people during these ceremonies, they asked to, you know, grow old, become elders and that type. And with me, I just said, I just want to see my son become a man, you know, let him go into military college, whatever, but let me be here for him until he turns 18. That's all I asked. I didn't ask to grow old or anything. I'm I'll well, just let me live that long. And just by chance, that was in April, in June, it was Father's Day weekend, and it was Friday the 13th. I happened to have been in the hospital, though, for about three, four days. And they told me really, I had days to live. I did my funeral arrangements. In our way out here with the tribes, we have special things that we have to do for when you pass away there's clothes burning, there's wakes, there's a ton of stuff. So I wrote everything out for my family and then waited. And just by chance that Thursday night, they came in and had a match. And they did the transplant on Friday the 13th. And like I said, I didn't know it was Friday the 13th at the time. But um, it was a perfect match. From what I heard, it was a young man that was in an accident. I wrote his family, but they haven't written me back. And I don't know if that was their only son. But from then on, you know, I've been on medications, and it'll be 13 years on June 13th this year. And my son, he's 15 now, and he's one of our traditional dancers and singers. And he's in high school. I never thought I'd see him go to preschool. (laughs) We're living a good life. And uh, Women Heart definitely has helped. Like I said, I joined in 2006, and I was told to go to a support group in La Jolla, actually, by a good friend. And I went kicking and screaming. But I met another woman there who had just had a baby and had a heart transplant, too. And her name's Kathleen, and we've been friends ever since. Our boys are both 15. So Women Heart definitely has a special place with me. Randy, that
1: story was just incredible. And there are a few things I'm taking away from that. First was when you were told to just suck it up. And it goes back to the consistent theme about feeling and being trivialized. And I think for pregnancy, especially, we come across this where it can be hard to tell the normal symptoms of pregnancy apart from the symptoms that indicate that something is wrong. We're in the midst of this cardio obstetric series and this episode, this discussion is a part of that. You know, cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of pregnancy related death in women. And especially hearing your story, non-Hispanic Blacks and American Indians and Alaska Native women are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy-related cause compared to white women. I think your story really hits home for a number of reasons. Not having access to healthcare around your home, access to expert tertiary care, healthcare, where you are on the reservation is a part of it. But then also, it's amazing to hear how your community came together for the ceremony to support you and your family. It's just absolutely beautiful. And now, you get to see your son grow. And I think you're using your son's laptop to be a part of this discussion. So we come full circle and congratulations for being such an inspiration for so many women out there.
0: Dr. Hayes, when hearing these impressionable stories, I'm struck by a common theme of symptoms being minimalized or trivialized either by physicians and providers or by the patients themselves. Perhaps it's due to suboptimal education around women's cardiovascular health and disease. And among many factors, I'm sure this is quite a multifactorial thing but what has your experience been with women presenting with heart disease and how are their symptoms perceived by providers and patients?
2: Starting with the positive, before we go a little bit of where we have opportunities, things are better. I think both Dr. Wanger and I have seen raise in awareness by both individuals and by healthcare providers. That said, It gives me PTSD when I sit down with a a woman who says, "Yeah, I went in and I told them I was having symptoms, sometimes truly classic, like an elephant on my chest, radiating up to my jaw with sweating." And if they even get a cardiac evaluation, I have actually several patients who were scared because they were younger and didn't listen. They actually had an elevated troponin and were sent out of the ED. Now that would not happen to a man. We don't send people out with elevated troponins, and so I think that there is both biases and unconscious biases about what a heart patient looks like, and it doesn't look like the three women on this call, right? So I think there's those things that are deeply innate, and some of that comes from our training, right? We were taught that heart disease is a middle-aged and older man problem, and that women were relatively protected. We have known that has not been true since the 90s when the data was very clear, but that is very slow when you have a couple of generations of healthcare providers who that's what stuck in their head. We still have the media which reinforces this with the Hollywood heart attack of an old man falling dead on the street with rapid symptoms that are very abrupt. That is not the experience of most men or women. So again, we have media that has perpetuated more subtle symptoms not being heart. To be fair to those of us who may not always get it right as healthcare providers, we still have some huge science and evidence gaps. Women were not being included in clinical trials at all until the 90s, and still are very underrepresented, particularly in heart failure, device trials, and acute coronary syndrome. So there's a legitimate academic knowledge gap that may take us longer to diagnose that woman. That's not an excuse, but it is a reason we need to advance the science. So there are provider knowledge gaps. And we know that in medicine, new findings are not translated to clinical practice fast enough. And so when we do learn about microvascular disease or things that disproportionately affect women, you know, when I was first practicing microvascular disease, wasn't even a thing. And then when it became a thing, a lot of the older individuals, Dr. Wanger, excluded, but if you can't see it, it must not exist. We need to get over that, particularly for our conditions that affect women, women still that feminine mystique, a lot of stuff happens to women. That's different than happens to men. And instead of saying it doesn't happen because we can't see it, we need to say we need to better understand it. And I get back to, I think, particularly for younger women, because they may not look the part, but for older women and pregnant women, the infantilization of those individuals and the paternalism that is often extended to those patients. Somehow, healthcare providers come off as we know best. It's just pregnancy related thing, or it's just menopause, or it's just getting older. And those are insufficient excuses because those things do happen to women and not to men. But I think that all of those things come together that inform the stories of the women we heard from today. And I think one other thing I'll bring in that fits a bit is one of the challenges that we healthcare providers have with women is they do present with more symptoms. So every single study has shown that regardless, and not just for cardiac issues, for cancer and others, women come in and they are feeling six to 10 different symptoms for that condition where men have one or two. And that does lead us to having more challenges in that diagnosis. Not an excuse. It's actually an excuse for us to get better at that. Women get trivialized because they are women and there are huge societal biases against women and listening to them and believing them. We know that from pain studies and others, but we in cardiology need to get the science right.
1: Yeah, Dr. Hayes, I appreciated that you started off with the positive. And I believe that for the first time, women are less likely to die from heart disease than men. And I've heard Dr. Wanger say that now we're in second place and we're happy to stay there. But clearly we have a long way to go. Dr. Wanger, why do you think there is a tendency to underdiagnose and undertreat women And what is your advice for cardi nerds taking care of women at risk for heart disease?
3: In other spheres, people say that those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. And essentially, this is something that we should know. Because as Dr. Hayes has said, in the last century, heart disease was a disease of men. And it wasn't surprising because the major problem was coronary disease and heart attack. And at that time, prior to contemporary therapies, a myocardial infarction carried a 40 to 60% mortality. So everyone worried about it. And the men were very visible. They were hospitalized at that time for 6, 8, 10, 12 weeks. So we saw men with heart attack. But as early as the Framingham Heart Study, women had more angina. And that has persisted women have the warnings that are disregarded. But at that time, angina was not fatal and it was ignored. And only recently have we gone back to Framingham and said, these women had myocardial ischemia. It was simply manifest initially as angina. But currently, now that we have realized that the female heart is vulnerable and we have sex-specific approaches to prevention, to diagnosis, to therapy... What we have seen is that the mortality from cardiovascular disease, predominantly coronary disease in women has plummeted even more rapidly than that for men. Well, you know, there's always the good news and the bad news. That is the good news. The bad news is something that was just published last year. And it was associated with the finding that cardiovascular mortality, where as it is remained decreasing in older women, it's plateaued or even increasing in younger women so that women age 35 to 50 or 55 are actually having an increased mortality. It is reversing the benefits of three or four decades. Women now have higher coronary risk scores than they did before. And there was a very interesting paper showing that in the past decade, there has been a decrease in awareness. When the programs, the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute and the American Heart Association, the Go Red campaigns came out, the awareness of women that cardiovascular disease was their leading cause of death increased from about the 30 percent to the 50 percent. But after that, it plateaued. And now not only has it plateaued, but it has decreased so that today women are less aware of cardiovascular disease as their leading cause of mortality. And they don't know the signs and symptoms of a heart attack, nor do they know the appropriate response. And this is from multiple quite good surveys. But the important part is that it is the young women, the women who would not be the icons for heart disease, young women, and particularly women of racial and ethnic minorities. So this is our challenged population. They are challenged in terms of their lesser awareness, they are challenged because coming into an emergency room or a primary care setting, they will not be listened to or believed. And we must educate them to become their own advocates. We must educate them about heart health, life's simple seven, because this is the population at risk. And at the same time, we have to re-educate our healthcare professionals.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Wanger. Dr. Hayes, do you have anything to add to that?
3: No, I think the
2: concerning thing about the rise in mortality in younger women, we've been seeing that it was dropping in all age and gender groups except for that group and it was staying the same. And now we are seeing it starting to uptick. And I think this deserves a huge amount of attention because we don't completely understand it. We think there has been a rise or at least not a drop in risk factors, but it may be something else. There's a lot of evidence that premenopausal heart disease, whether it's myocardial infarction or others, is actually maybe a completely different issue than postmenopausal heart disease, which may be more like men's. If you think about autoimmune conditions, if you think about pregnancy-related conditions, if you think about hormonal milieu, and so I think that's where we really need to focus some efforts to better understand Because if we're treating women and getting better at treating women who have typical types of heart disease that we see in older women and in men, we still have a huge gap to understand and to treat and manage and prevent heart disease in the younger women.
3: Well, you know, the feature that is a corollary to this is that we all now recognize that pregnancy-related complications really portend future heart disease. And concomitant with this increase in cardiovascular mortality in young women, we have seen an almost 25% increase in preeclampsia during pregnancy. And there's a great deal of attention to this because our OBGYN colleagues are told that the woman at high risk for preeclampsia should have low dose aspirin during pregnancy. But what is it that is a characteristic of that high risk? It is the young woman who comes to pregnancy with a spectrum of cardiovascular risk factors. That puts her at risk during her pregnancy as well as later.
0: Well, thank you both, Dr. Hayes and Dr. Wanger. This is really enlightening and eye-opening in terms of cardiovascular disease in the pre- and post-menopausal patient. Prevention has been so effective in the male population. We definitely need to bring it over to the female population, but at the same time, broadening our definition of prevention for younger patients who seem to be getting the short end of the straw here in terms of cardiovascular disease. So while we can definitely focus on prevention, diagnosis, and therapy, and we've made great strides in older women, we now really have to think more holistically about the younger women and dive deep, get more understanding about the pathophysiology of what's going on. And of course, at the same time, education, 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 and advocacy so that we can help providers and physicians. So let's turn back to our women's heart champions, Brandy, Ellen, and Thea. What do you wish your doctors would have done differently? If you can go back in time and would be able to tell them about yourself or give them advice about how to take care of you in a more effective way, is there something that you wish they would know?
6: Well, definitely. When I was at the Indian Health Clinic, just a little history on Indian health, though, too, is that there have been treaties passed for health care. There's been executive orders passed. There's been federal acts passed. So we're guaranteed health care. But the problem is the quality of healthcare, we usually get some of the older retired doctors or some of the brand new ones or the ones that just want to come to the clinic, get some scholarship money paid and then leave. So we don't have the expert OBGYNs or we don't have an expert cardiologist there or anything like that. The one that did see me though, she was a woman and she was a nurse practitioner and she's the one that said, maybe it is asthma and maybe you just need some sleeping pills. And I think that I probably should have sat with her longer. I was young. I was the first time mom, you know, I was hearing it from my own mom that this is what it's like to be pregnant. Maybe sat with her more and told her, no, really, maybe I need some blood work done. Maybe I need some tests done. Well, I didn't do that. Then when I went to the hospital, which is even more intimidating, you know, it's an hour away from our reservation and getting there and it's a man. And he said, my wife is pregnant too. I should have really spoke up for myself then. And that's why I really try to promote that with women today to if there's any issues, please speak up because it is your body and you know it. This man doesn't know it. And I was very grateful when I got down to San Diego to start medical care down there when I went in and said, this is what's going on. And I even told them, maybe I'm going crazy, but something is really wrong. And they did my blood work. They've checked everything and they put me straight into the intensive care units. They definitely took me serious a lot more. But um, yeah, that's one thing is definitely just to speak up. I wish I would have done that more. And I hope women
0: today will be able to do it more. Thank you for sharing that, Brandy. Is there something that physicians or providers should be listening out for when patients are giving them their symptoms? Because some of these symptoms are so common. Should there be anything that should trigger us to rethink ourselves and not get complacent?
6: My recommendation is for the doctors just to take that extra minute to sit down and really listen. I know everyone's busy and I know there's, especially in the emergency room, you know, they're from one room to another. But especially when a young woman comes in and has issues, and I know that they've been passed off as anxiety and just not taken seriously, but just take that extra minute. Obviously, she's in there for a reason. And like I said, she knows her body and and to listen. And I encourage women just to speak up. If it was to happen to me now that I'm 47 years old, I would be in there just raising havoc. (laughs) But when you're 32 and you're a first time pregnancy, it is intimidating, but I definitely want women just to empower themselves.
2: So Dan, I would just say it's so important that we hashtag believe her. Women do not leave their busy lives, leave their children, leave their jobs to go get evaluated unless they are concerned about their health. And we should take them as seriously when they come in and not minimize, trivialize. I have heard so many women tell me that they have felt shamed and blamed or not gone to the ED. So what if they tell me it's just GERD and literally are afraid of what the neighbors will think or what the doctors will think? So I think that if we could tell anybody, all of us have to be reminded after a long, busy day Mm -hmm. is believing her because I have gained so much humility over my career because things that I was taught were not heart disease symptoms or were not heart disease. I now know are. And I know that 20 years ago, I told patients, it's not your heart. Good news. Because I did all the tests that I could. We know better now, but we don't know enough. So believe her.
3: Let me add some tangential information. There are several studies in the literature, both from intensive care units and from emergency rooms, that the women who are providers, the women physicians, have better outcomes for their patients than the men physicians. And these are good studies and they are true. Now, I will tell you, we are probably not any smarter than our male colleagues, but we do know how to listen. And the most important part in getting information from the patient is to let the patient speak and to listen. And perhaps if I want to alter some of the healthcare education curriculum, it would be to teach people how to listen.
0: Thank you very much. And so what I'm hearing is empowerment. Women should feel empowered to advocate for themselves. And then hashtag believer. Really on the flip side, the onus is not on the patient, but on the provider to believe and then let the patient speak and listen. Even if you're busy, that is the first step of making the right diagnosis. So I'll turn this now over to Ellen. Ellen, would you mind sharing us? Is there something that you wish your providers knew?
5: Yeah. So when I had my SCAD 11 years ago, I was assigned a cardiologist and I was told by this cardiologist that he had only had one SCAD patient. And that was 30 years ago. And he also told me it was a fluke and it'll never happen again and move on with your life. He retired maybe nine or 10 months after I had my SCAD. And so I thought at that point, I'm going to take advantage. I need to find a doctor that will listen to me, be honest with me, because I didn't think he was being honest with me. How did he know this was a fluke and it'll never happen again? I couldn't comprehend that. And I went searching for a, a new cardiologist and started interviewing doctors. And the cardiologist that I ended up with, I asked him, do you think this will happen to me again? And he said, I don't know. And to me, that was like, okay, you're hired <laughs> because I rather had him say, I don't know, instead of it's a fluke, it'll never happen again, move on with your life. And because they don't know about SCAD, whether this will happen again, they're getting closer to understanding it, but they just still don't know what causes this. And for a doctor to tell me what he did just didn't settle with me. So for me, having a doctor just be honest, if they don't know, it's better to say, I don't know, and say, I'll go look into it, or we don't know now, but as we learn, we'll learn together. And to me, that's really important is being able to have that relationship with your physician.
0: Well, thank you so much, Ellen. And I can actually relate to this so much. I have a daughter with a rare neurocognitive delay. And when I speak to the experts who are most familiar with it, what they tell me is, we don't know, but we're with you on that journey. And as your daughter makes milestones and overcomes things that we wouldn't have expected, we will add that to the list of things that are possible for this particular condition. So I can very much empathize with that aspect of what your provider told you. And Thea.
3: Before you go to Thea, I want to emphasize for the junior cardio nerds how much SCAD is a Women Heart story, because this is absolutely an indication of the power of social media. Because within Women Heart, there were a number of women who had SCAD, and all of them were being seen by quality practitioners who had just seen one or two or three women. And that was the problem that all of the well-trained cardiologists had. And through Women Heart, what was done over social media was to recruit women who had SCAD, who by themselves sent all of their data, their angiograms, their clinical data, et cetera, to the Mayo Clinic, facilitated in great extent by Dr. Sharon Hayes, who deserves enormous credit for this organizational skill. But the fact of the matter is that there was no way that anyone would have funded a registry that came via Women Heart and via social media. And the Mayo Clinic essentially accumulated this huge database that began the investigation into SCAD. So I think when anyone says SCAD, there should be a little subtitle which says, you owe much of this to Women Heart. I would agree. And, you know, when we talk
2: about industry initiated research or investigator initiated, I always refer to this as patient initiated research because there were questions that had come up. Literally, the Women Hearts online community has thousands of people on it, but any SCAD patient finding another SCAD patient was very hard. But over a period of time, they came together and there were about 70 of them. And it was at one of the Women Heart Champion Training Programs in 2009. When I got the question, what is Mayo Clinic doing about studying SCAD? And I puffed up and said, oh, like I run a women's heart clinic. I know more about SCAD than most. And nobody, not even the Mayo Clinic, could do research on it because it's too uncommon. I take those words back, but I talk about how we can, when we walk with patients and when we let them lead, that we can make breakthroughs and we can better understand diseases. So I'm like a complete believer of not just patient-centered care, this is patient initiated and we should be walking with them. Thank you, Nanette, for bringing that up. But it is a story that started on Women Hearts online community. And this was a condition that prior to 2011, Really, we had some very old school beliefs about it.
5: Can I say one more thing on it? As I said earlier, that my doctor said that I was the only SCAD patient that he had seen in 30 years. They probably didn't know what they were seeing because I can't imagine in 2010, I was the first one that all of a sudden had a SCAD. But now in the healthcare organization that I belong to in San Diego, we have hundreds of SCAD patients that are being identified. And they've even gone back and looked throughout the years and looked at angiograms and realized that they've been misdiagnosed. It used to be considered rare. I guess Dr. Hayes says it's not common now. And thank you, Dr. Hayes.
0: Yes. Thank you, Dr. Wayne, for bringing that up. And Dr. Hayes, your work on SCAD has had so many ripple effects. And Ellen, I want you to know that because of the work of Women's Heart and Dr. Hayes, fellows like me and Amit, it's so part of our training and our core way of thinking. And in fact, I'm an interventional fellow now. When we have a patient that comes in, we're taking them seriously. We're listening to them. We're going to the cath lab in our differential of what to look for before we even shoot the coronaries is SCAD. Because sometimes we know it's subtle and sometimes, you know, it could be challenging to see. And if you're not looking for it, you may not see it. So to hear the story and how it got here is incredibly valuable to young fellows like Amit and myself, but also knowing that there are other things that we may not be seeing. Maybe, you know, SCAD is just part of it. But as you talked about, there's so many other entities with women coming in with chest pain syndromes, and we don't necessarily have an answer with our typical evaluation of the epicardial coronary artery. So we're on the lookout and we will walk with our patients and let them lead and learn from them. So thank you for that. Thea, back to you. Is there anything that you would want your providers to know about you when you presented to them so many years ago?
4: So many years ago, I wish that my primary care would have listened to me more when I became diabetic. And at that time, my thinking was, I'm 30 years old. I got a little time and my mother and my grandmother were diagnosed with breast cancer. And at that time, tamoxifen, you had to pay out of pocket. It was not covered under their insurance. So I paid for their medications and sacrificed myself. So I was labeled as noncompliant and nobody investigated why I was non-compliant. Nobody listened, even though I would tell them I am the only working child grandchild here in Dayton for my mom and my grandmother who are both undergoing breast cancer treatment and I'm paying for their medications. It was still dismissed. So I put myself on the back burner and that label has continued on with me. Each new doctor or provider that I get, it's like, well, you're non compliant. And it's sometimes it's they shrug you off. And then I have to go through the whole story again of why I was non compliant. And then it's, oh, so we're going to take that off. But that label follows you and follows you. Yes, I knew diabetes could cause heart disease. Yes, I knew that but I want my mom and my grandmother here longer. I'm young. I probably got a little bit more time before these microvascular, macrovascular and all these things would happen. So listening to me and investigating why I'm quote unquote non-compliant would have helped a lot out too. And they have to understand that they are a team. You have a primary care, you have specialists, that's the whole team. And everybody needs to be collaborating and on one accord also.
2: Can I say to all of the up and coming cardio nerds, don't use the term non-compliant. That immediately we're not walking with our patients and uh, mm-hmm. it is a blaming thing. Don't put it in your notes. Don't refer to patients. They may not be adherent to the recommendations we make and we should ask them why and not mm-hmm. make judging about that because there could be side effects. There could be cost issues. They might not have understood why or even understood how they were supposed to use this medication or treatment or lifestyle change. And again, using language is so powerful. It is powerful when we are speaking to patients. It is powerful when we write it in our notes. So when we put noncompliant patient, or we put elderly, or we put some label on a patient, it often primes the next individual who is caring for them to not give them a chance. And so taking a step back and looking at some of these words and thinking how they might be applied to you as an individual can help us being more human with our patients because you may not have taken the medication. I wouldn't label what you did as non-compliant. Your physician may have because you weren't complying with him or her, but you were making decisions that seemed very logical for you. And, And that is usually the case, honestly.
3: And again, now that we speak about teams involved in patient care, Part of the teams are people who can improve access to medications, because so many companies have plans that will allow patients access, and particularly we've seen that during COVID. If they have financial challenges, very often there will be less expensive medications, and even there may have been someone who might have been able to help you with medications for your mother and your grandmother.
0: So hashtag ask why, and then basically note to all cardiologists everywhere, don't say non-compliant. It just is a terrible term. And you may write non-compliant in your note and not even think about the repercussions that can come from that. So for example, a patient later presents with a STEMI and what's coming out of their note is non-compliant. And then everybody thinks twice about putting a stent in, knowing that, oh, this patient is non-compliant when really, again, at the time they may not have insurance. It may not even be an issue now. And a correlate, patients refuse. They refuse bypass surgery. And now they come in three years later with, again, chest pain, and people just say, well, they refused bypass, so what are we going to do for them? Well, maybe at the time they were taking care of an elderly parent, so they declined it at the time. So these are terms that we should really avoid in the medical chart.
1: Yeah, this is such a rich discussion about things we see all the time. Yeah, you're not just a woman with heart disease. If I may, you're a Black woman with heart disease. And we see time and again that our Black patients just are not offered to the same degree basic therapy that we know is indicated. And so we were having this discussion with Dr. Quinn Capers He wrote this review with one of our colleagues, Zuna Sherelea, who's an interventional fellow about the disparities in care with regards to black patients. All right. And so four things that for me is very common sense, right? So the ICD therapy to prevent sudden cardiac death, cardiac resynchronization therapy in patients with heart failure, coronary revascularization in patients with a heart attack. So, you know, opening up the artery with a stent and opening up a blood vessel in patients with critical limb ischemia in each of these paradigms, which again, are common sense, basic levels of care, there's a huge disparity in how these treatments are offered to our Black patients compared to our non-Black patients. And so that's why your story really does speak to me. We see this in the data and hopefully discussions like this will at least help us address the implicit bias.
3: Again, so much new emphasis on the social determinants of health, and certainly medications would be one of them. But so many of the other areas in terms of the social determinants will be access to the appropriate foods, access to safe places to exercise, the entire issue of environmental pollutants. Those essentially were unaddressed for decades. And if there is one of the few benefits to come out of having survived or surviving a COVID epidemic, it is that social determinants of health have come to the forefront and evidence based medicine has come to the forefront and patients now know about this. And what used to be confined to medical grand rounds is now dinner table parlance. I expect that we are going to go in very different directions in terms of patient-centered care. Because whereas the patient is the center of it, it is the milieu in which that patient and patient's family and community operates that will be very determining in terms of outcomes in the future.
1: Yes, thank you, Dr. Wenger. And this also reminds me of our discussion with one of Dr. Hayes' mentees, Dr. La Princess Brewer, in her work with community-based participatory research, and this concept of both walking with a patient and engaging our patients in the patient-directed research to understand their home, their environment, and these social determinants. So I really appreciate you highlighting that. So Dr. Wenger cardiovascular disease, as we said, is the leading cause of death in women. And the signal that we talked about for possible increase in cardiovascular death in young women is definitely a step in the wrong direction. Some risk factors are more potent in women. Others are more common in women. And there are diseases that are more common in women, as we discussed, coronary microvascular disease, SCAD, and of course, peripartum cardiomyopathy. It seems like there's both inadequate research regarding sex-specific risk factors and outcomes, as well as a lack of awareness about the data that does exist. And Dr. Hayes mentioned this before. And about your paradigm for change, investigate, educate, advocate, and legislate. How do we improve investigation into women's cardiovascular health issues? And how do we enroll more sex balanced cohorts in our clinical research?
3: Again, there has been a tremendous emphasis in the National Institutes of Health coming out of the Office of Research on Women's Health. And decades ago, when someone talked about women's health, it was what I used to term bikini medicine." the areas that of the body covered by a bikini bathing suit, the breasts and the reproductive system. And women's health, other than that, was essentially neglected in research. And now that we have an emphasis on sex and gender-based medicine, this tells us how much we have to learn. So that we have to emphasize to researchers that this is an important and a funded part of research. Some of the Birch studies have encouraged sex and gender research in all aspects of medicine. And some of these newer SCORE programs are doing the same. So now that we have funding opportunities based on investigations of sex and gender differences, people in a variety of healthcare issues are looking at. But there is a problem because as we look at who leads clinical trials, and we can look at that by examining the literature and seeing who is the first author and the last author among the whole panoply of people on the clinical trial list. It is relatively rare to see a woman as the first or last author, meaning the leaders of that clinical trial. And when women lead clinical trials, they ask different questions. They ask more comprehensive questions. And sometimes only after the conclusion of the trial. Do we realize if there were sex and gender differences explored, there was not information gathered during the trial that would give us that explanation? So we need this in the early phases of trial development. I think there's another thing that is emerging but has not yet grown, and that is women as journal editors. Having served as a journal editor for about 15 years of my life, I realized that going into meetings of journal editors I saw very few people who looked like me. Now we're seeing more women in leadership positions in journals in general and in cardiovascular journals. And I expect that, again, it is a different perspective. It is another view at the table. It is another area of interest that might determine special editions. But this is one of the ways that researchers contribute and practitioners learn. But I want to emphasize one feature in terms of research. And that is what we have learned again with COVID. And the most disadvantaged group of researchers across the board were women with children. Because in addition to doing their clinical work and their research work, they were homemakers, they were teachers, they were playground monitors, they were everything. And how are we going to catch up What is it that the universities and the funding agencies are going to do? How can we make up for that year of lost research, either in the basic science lab or in the clinical area where patient recruitment and retention became a problem? What are we going to do with the promotions and tenure? Many of the research universities have essentially cut that year out of the tenure track. And sometimes the women who are the ones affected have not been informed of that benefit. So we really have to come together to look at all the aspects that affect research. And the more we look, the more we find.
0: And that is excellent advice, Dr. Wanger. And at this time, we get to take the privilege of shouting out to one of our mentors who is a professional daughter of yours, Dr. Martha Galati, for her work in advocacy and with her circulation paper that came out in 2017, Improving the Cardiovascular Health of Women in the Nation, Moving Beyond the Bikini Boundaries, which is a reference to your ideas and your work. And she has been guiding us and is one of our mentors as we try to do the same in terms of promotion of women's cardiovascular health, but then at the same time, promoting professional diversity with an emphasis of improving the field as a whole, but also improving health disparities. So we definitely really cherish and value what you have brought to the table. So the next part of your paradigm, Dr. Wanger, was to educate. Dr. Hayes, we heard Ellen's, Thea's, and Brandy's advice for their original providers, but one-on-one education can only go so far. How do we educate and raise awareness at the broader scale?
2: Well, one, I would double down on Dr. Wanger saying we need to investigate more because We as scientists read the New England Journal, we read our Jack, and so getting it out there and getting it validated is a foundation, but we need to start sooner than that. So I think embedding sex and gender medicine in all forms and at all levels of training for healthcare providers, and not just physicians, not just cardiologists, this should be a nursing school. This should be an undergraduate medical education. And it's not there. There are a few medical schools who are doing this by truly integrating. Like when they teach cardiology, they talk about sex and gender, but most still leave it to women's health, or it's like two evening lectures that are add ons, you know, women's heart health or women in general, or they try to plunk it all in OB gyne So they're still treating it like bikini medicine and coming back to every cell has a sex. So I do think that both at the undergraduate medical as well as graduate, our orthopedic surgical colleagues need this too. You know, young women athletes get more ACL tears. So there are real sex and gender differences. I think the other part is setting up systems to help us not get hijacked by our unconscious biases. So by that, I mean, you know, standard dismissal orders after a myocardial infarction. So we know that women will get aspirin and a beta blocker. So support us if we are thinking, well, she's too old or that might give her side effects because the last woman I cared for had side effects from that med putting in systems that will improve the care for everyone. One of the things about following guidelines, having good, strong guidelines that are easily accessible and usable is a rising tide lifts all boats because we are not doing the best job, the perfect job for men. And if we put in guidelines and improve the care, we disproportionately improve the care of women and people of color. So I think really codifying and making sure that we are supported so if you went to a medical school or an undergraduate training where there was no sex and gender medicine training, there are some free options online that are quite good. NIH has them, Texas Tech, University Health Sciences, the Laura Bush Foundation actually has some free curriculum. They give it away. I think that us being more educated and having some requirements put around it. I did want to circle back to... Our patients, our women heart champions were so eloquent about talking about how they were telling people something was wrong and they were not being heard by who was caring for them. And I just wanted to share a personal anecdote because it was something that changed the way that I thought about myself as a physician. There was a study published way back in 1993, and I didn't read it till probably 95, 96 It was a study that took three groups of physicians and gave them three definitions of a woman with chest pain. And it was intermediate. This is not a woman having a heart attack. And so they had an actress who presented it in business clothes in a very straightforward way. Remember, this is a script. They then had the same actress present it in a hysterical way, author's use of word, big hair, big nails, and lots of this. And then they had another group that read the transcript. Well, you know where I am going because the woman who was hysterical despite saying the exact same words was more likely to be said that her symptoms were functional or in her head less likely to be referred to a cardiologist and the woman in the business suit got more credit than she probably needed they took her seriously i reflected because i think self reflection is good on how when i was doing my ob rotation as a medical student that i actually had more of a problem because i come from a family that doesn't speak out or scream much And I remember thinking about the women who were really screaming when they were giving birth and much more and wondering about that. And I thought patients should not have to present their symptoms in a way that is acceptable to me as their physician. I should be able, because of my skill and training, to listen to all types of representations, including the stoic Iowa farm wife. Who waits until she's bleeding out before coming to see a doctor, as well as that individual who may seem to me, because of my own cultural biases, to be overrepresenting. And I think we need to train ourselves better. It gets back to Dr. Wenger talking about learning to listen, but not just to hear, but to be able to hear what's behind the words.
1: That's incredible, Dr. Hayes. And I, I really appreciate how reading that article made you self-reflect and thinking about those results. I'm, I'm moved to think about my own unconscious biases, and I, I can totally see how not even the most well-meaning person can sort of fall prey to these biases. So it's important to pay attention and you're talking about our need to educate, how we have to reach people at all levels, right? Spanning from the undergraduate studies through to the guidelines. And I think these kinds of discussions, I know this episode will be heard by medical students, residents, cardiology fellows, faculty alike. So I do hope that we all, myself included, we all can take these and internalize them and execute them for the betterment for our patients. <laughs> In talking about reaching the providers as well as our patients and improving the health of women with cardiovascular disease, I want to turn to our Women Heart Champions, because the work you're doing is phenomenal and the reach you have is incredible. I want to ask you, how did you get involved with Women Heart? What is your role within the organization? And, you know, it's one thing to become a patient and tell your next door neighbor about your experience, but what moved you towards advocacy and support for other women with heart disease?
4: I found Woman Heart on Google in 2010 as I was researching for my thesis, which was on women and heart disease for my master's program. As that one came up, I just dove into it a little bit more. And at that time, they were taking applications for the Science and Leadership Symposium. So I went ahead and applied and I got accepted. And at that time, I was just having the quote unquote, trivial heart problems. So I went and I learned a lot. I met Dr. Hayes, Dr. Winger, as well as a whole nother sisterhood of women who were experiencing some of the same things, some different things, whether it was minor, whether it was severe. But we all had one thing in common, and that was the heart disease. It didn't matter if we were black, white, Asian, Mexican, and none of that. We were all sisters and we all became family at the first meet. So that's how I became involved with Women Heart. And I am a Women Heart champion first, but I also hold the title of District Community Leader, which I am the DCL for the Upper Midwest.
1: That's amazing, Thea. You have such an incredible leadership role, and and really, I am seeing from this discussion and from others how meaningful a Women Heart is for so many. You heard about Women Heart through Google. I heard about Women Heart through Dr. Sharon Hayes, and it was really proud to say her brainchild to get everyone together for this discussion. So I'm so thankful that we're doing this. Ellen, let's turn to you next. What drove you towards advocacy and becoming a member, a leader within Women Heart, rather?
5: I found Women Heart because I was involved with a group of SCAD survivors. I found them online as well through Team Inspire, which is an online support group for women with heart disease that Women Heart is involved in as well. It's women from all over the world. And then there was a subset of SCAD survivors. And then we started a Facebook page for just SCAD survivors. And on the Facebook page, there were a couple of survivors that were already Women Heart Champion. And they were talking about how great it was. And so I too went on and I can go to the Women's Heart Symposium at the Mayo Clinic in 2012. And I did go and I became a Women's Heart Support Group leader. I started the first support group at Kaiser for women with heart disease in 2013. And I still hold that support group. I also lead three other support groups right now. And I am a district leader as well for the support group for the Western District. But I think really the reason why I do this is because I'm not shy, surprise. <laughs> and I honestly came to grips with why I had a heart attack. I, for years, I kept saying, why did this happen to me? I did, why did this happen? And I think the reason why it happened to me is because I'm not a shy person. I'm not afraid to tell anybody about what happened to me. I mean, I tell people all the time that I had a heart attack 11 years ago, and it was due to SCAD because I want to educate people. And I think that's why I had this is because I'm able to go out there and talk about it. And I feel that by me helping other people, it's helped me. So the selfish side is I may be helping lots of other women, but I can tell you every time I lead a support group, there'll be times where I don't want to go do my support group. Prior to Zoom, prior to COVID, we physically had support group meetings and I would work full-time. I have a pretty stressful job. I'm in an administrative role. And I'm like, oh, I just don't want to go do this it's after work. But I can remember going and doing it and going, I'm so glad I did this because somebody helped me where they're thinking I helped them. But honestly, it helps me every time that I help somebody else. I think that's why I did this. Plus the fact of what Portia said about the sisterhood. I have friends now all over the United States, all over the world that I would have never had if this had not become a part of my life. And I'm actually thankful for it. I know that sounds crazy, but I'm actually thankful.
1: Thank you, Ellen. And I'm thinking in my mind about the evolution of how you've processed your disease. You went from, in the moment, feeling denial. Your husband had to literally force you into getting to the hospital. Then you were devastated when you realized that something was wrong. And then it was over a period of months later that you came to terms with it. But I think most people would have stopped there. But I would say, despite your scad, your heart is big and warm. And you said, how can I help others and, and support others? And I'm just thinking for women who are so trivialized, how the kind of support and perspective and leadership that you bring can have so much impact for them. So thank you for being there for everyone. Brandy, I'd like to turn to you. And, and this hasn't come up yet. But you told me earlier when we'd met how involved you've been in the governance of your community, the Indian Reservation. And so, in my mind, you're already primed to become a leader, and you have been a leader. But what was it that drove you to become a leader and that part of advocacy within Women Heart?
6: I've been in tribal government. We have our own government as tribes for about 18 years now. And so, when I was pregnant and had gotten sick, I had a really good friend named Wanda Cook, who was a board member of Women Heart, and she's Native American too. She was from a tribe out in New York, and she's the one that said you need to go to the support group. And the support group was in La Jolla, and that's where I met another woman who had a heart transplant and a baby. So I did that, and then she said you need to go to the symposium at the Mayo Clinic, and that was in 2006. My son was only a year old. I didn't want to leave him. and I still wasn't feeling too good. But she's all, it'll be good for you. I did. I went out there. I met another woman who was Native American as well too. Her name's Renee, and she's from a Pueblo tribe out in New Mexico. And we are still very good friends today. So I was able to meet other women from other areas. And also with Thea too, we happen to have been roommates. Was it a year ago or two years ago? Where I went out to speak at another Women Heart Symposium too. And we've been good friends ever since. I just believe that with Native Americans, a lot of people don't even think we exist anymore. There's over 570 tribes in in the United States. Our population is small, but with heart disease, it is not only other women's number one killer, it definitely is ours. And so just to bring awareness to the tribes and also being in the leadership position though, too, it was hard in the beginning because with women out here, we're supposed to be incredibly strong and we lift up our men, we lift up our children. And for me to actually admit, you know, I, I have this, I had to get a heart transplant but it's okay. I'm here. I'm still strong. I'm still building my community. And if you need help, if you want to talk to someone, I'm here. And so that's why I reach out to all the tribes here in the Southern California.
1: Randy, the way you talk about community is so special. I'm hearing you speak and I feel like you have three families. You've got your nuclear biological family, and you've got your Native American family, and you also have your women heart family. And it's amazing to see how the intersection of these families help you find a home and support and empowerment but you develop as a leader within each of these and you help other people find their home and family and community. And so it's really great to see that.
6: Another great part too Women woman heart is that they have the big sister program too. So they match you with other women who have similar age, similar, maybe background, similar diagnoses too. And so it's been great to be able to reach out to these other women who um, either have similar issues. So that's another great part, women
0: heart. Thank you, Brandy. And thank you all of you for sharing your insights. Dr. Hayes, taking this back to you, Why aren't investigation and education enough? Why is advocacy so important in the space? And what does advocacy actually look like?
2: I wish advocacy wasn't required. Like in a perfect world, there would be science that would then lead education that would lead a appropriate practice. But we know from history that's not the case. So advocacy is important because it can help shine a bright light and lift up the things that really are not being taken as seriously or not going through that proper sense of going from investigation to education to practice. I think advocacy, though, can look differently. So some people have this view of advocacy. Oh, I go once a year and I go talk to my representative about X some bill or something that's important, uh, minimum wage or heart disease in women. But advocacy occurs at all levels, including self-advocacy. And I think that although I go back to saying, I think that we as providers of healthcare should not expect our patients to have to advocate. That is something I teach my patients every single day is how to advocate themselves and encourage them that you know your body the best. Only you are the expert in that. You may be seeing an expert in cardiology, but you know better. And if you are not getting what you need from that nurse or doctor or healthcare system, is expecting better. That's one thing it should look like. It should also look like us as healthcare providers advocating for our individual patients. So that's another way that advocacy plays out, whether it's by getting a drug approved that they really need or getting a test or advocating that they get appropriate referrals. There's lots of things that we can do, or our offices can do, like connecting them with improving their social determinants of health. So we should be individual advocates for our patients. But the big uppercase A for advocacy is really looking at the big picture, perhaps joining with other individuals and groups and advocating for societal change. And that's where we aspire to for Heart and for cardiology and American College of Cardiology. And again, a message to the younger aspiring cardiologists there is we are busy, right? You are busy. I am busy. Dr. Wenger is really busy, but we have found time to fit some of these things in because they are so closely aligned with what we believe in on being a better physician, providing better care. So I hope that all of you will find some area of advocacy that doesn't feel like a bolted on extra piece of work that you have to do, but it's something that directly propels the work and the life that you want. That certainly has been for me. And I know for Dr. Wenger, it brings us great satisfaction, even if it is added on to another busy day.
1: I love how you speak about that, Dr. Hayes. Advocacy isn't an extracurricular activity that we tag onto our schedule, but naturally a part of the calling that we all share to improve the health of our patients and our communities. So thank you for that. Dr. Wenger, I'd love to hear your thoughts about advocacy, but also following along that paradigm about how do we take it a step further towards legislation? What role or responsibility do we as providers have in directing health policy to impact the health of our communities?
3: Well, legislation is truly what makes it happen, because we can have good thoughts, we can have good guidance, we can have good recommendations, and they just remain in the sphere of good. And I must admit to testifying before more committees in the Congress than I would have chosen to do, both on a national basis and on my state basis, but I want to cite two examples of recent legislation because your antennae should wiggle when you hear healthcare legislation in terms of saying not only how does it impact our nation, but how does it impact our patients? In 2015, there was a bipartisan legislation which shows that our Congress can really do something when they get their mind to it. And it's called the Research for All Act of 2015. And what it did was not to recommend or guide or suggest, but to mandate that the National Institutes of Health, both for the basic scientists and for the clinical scientists, address the issue of sex and gender differences. That, for example, for the basic scientists, that they know the provenance of their cells or tissues or animals Because amazingly, we found in retrospect that women's issues were being studied in male cells or male tissues. So now this is a mandate for the clinical trials that women and racial and ethnic minorities be included. And again, a mandate. We had to train the project officers. We had to train the review sections. And we had to train the people advising in the academic research institutions, the people who were submitting grants, because if on your grant you did not have the way you were going to address sex and gender differences, that would administratively be tossed back. And not just say, I'm going to include men and women, but to say, I'm going to include them in this proportion because of this reason, and then to have a plan in your study that if that recruitment was not adequate, what were your backup plans? And not only that, but in the design of the study, to be sure that issues that were specific to women, pregnancy, menopause, hormone replacement, oral contraceptives, all of those issues were included in the database that formed the total basis for the trial. And it will probably be a few more years until we see the results of this Because this applied to the studies, it took a while for everyone to learn how to do it, but now we are seeing this. And it also built on the Institute of Medicine recommendations that journal editors require of their authors to present sex and gender information in their research reports. But let me contrast this 2015, which I consider to be a major step forward, with what happened last year with our FDA. Now, I'm not bad-mouthing the FDA because they have done a stunning work during the COVID epidemic, but they did not do as stunning in providing guidance to industry because there was a document that came out after a number of years of study, 2020, the FDA guidance to industry, and it was about involving representative populations. When industry has a drug or a device, they'll typically come to the agency and say, if we do this, and if we do this, and if these are the results, are we likely to gain approval? That's step one. The guidance that was to be provided was to include sex and gender and a number of issues in terms of racial and ethnic minorities, older, et cetera. But it was just a guidance. I mean, okay, ladies and gents, if you can do it, go ahead and do it. If you don't, you will not be penalized. And that will not work. So our responsibility is to see that our FDA does what was done by the Congress for the NIH and to say guidances are not adequate. We need legislation.
0: That's so valuable, Dr. Wenger. Guidance is not adequate. It is going to be really important going forward. And, and just reflecting on what you said about the Research for All Act in 2015, our antennae are indeed wiggling because we could see how important it is to impact the basic science realm and the clinical science realm in terms of cardiovascular disease, making sure we get it right at the ground level up. Because as we talked about, there are so many scientific gaps mentioned earlier by Dr. Hayes. And if we don't get them where the actual research is going into, then how are we going to ever know what we don't know? So I see what you're saying, that guidance is not enough. We really need to enact changes that are concrete and that will drive the whole industry and also the medical field towards the correct and right direction. Turning back to our three Women's Heart champions, imagine you were talking to our most junior cardio the undergrads, the medical students, the residents and the fellows. What message would you share with them? What would you like them to know?
5: I think a lot of it's been said throughout this discussion. I think one of them is just really is to listen to your patient. And I think that all of the Women Heart Champions have said that. And then Dr. Hayes has said that as well. And as well as Dr. Wenger, it's just really important. We know our bodies and especially women, we have a tendency of being dismissed. And I think that it's just really important to listen to them. That's really important, at least for me. I want to be known in life in general that I'm being heard. And the fact that when you go to your physician, that's very important as well. Because one of the things that Dr. Hayes said that is, we as women don't go to the doctors unless we really need to go to the doctor because our lives are just so busy and we're so busy taking care of everybody else. And so if we're there, there's a reason why we're there.
0: Perfect. Listen to the patient cannot be emphasized enough. Thea, what message would you like our cardio nerds to take out of this?
5: Dan,
4: I would like the cardio nerds as Ellen said, do listen, don't label, do love what you do, and don't make the patient feel that you don't have the time for them. When a provider comes into the room, they need to also don't seem like they got one foot over the threshold another the other foot on the other side of the threshold. Like I got 15 minutes and that's all you're getting and I got to go.
0: That is great advice. Do listen, don't label, do love what you do, which I particularly love and speak to your patient and make them feel as if they are the center of attention and of all the time allotted to them so that you can get to the bottom of what they came to discuss. Brandy, what are your final thoughts and message to our Cardio Nerds audience?
6: I absolutely agree with both my heart sisters right here with what they said, you know, I'm taking the time listening and all that. Another thing too, is wherever the doctors are placed, I would recommend some sort of cultural competency training. Um, you know, if you're going to be down in the inner city of Chicago, I think you need to learn about the cultures there. And like I said, for my reservation, the nearest hospital is an hour and then the really good hospitals are hour and a half, two hours. And to have cultural competency training for them, because I think a lot of times they think when the natives come in that they don't take us serious and they just send us back to the reservation and to our health clinics. But that's one thing, though, I think would be good. You know, there's the Asian community, the Mexican community, too, as well, and others. So I would recommend that too, wherever they're they're placed in whatever hospitals.
0: Thank you so much, Brandy. Cultural competency training is just so important, particularly when you have a group of patients that are coming to you with a background that you're not as familiar with. And I add as a corollary, if you can take the time to just chat about their families, their lives like what makes them excited, really getting a richer experience. And it's not just about treating their systolic blood pressure. You're treating the patient. And as you continue to do this, you're going to learn more about people. And it makes medicine really more fun, at least from my perspective. So thank you for sharing that.
3: Well, Dan, you know, listening to these comments reminds me of something I learned as a medical student in the early days of cardiac care units, even before they were coronary care units. And the psychiatrist at the Massachusetts General Hospital, Dr. Tom Hackett, said the most important piece of equipment at the bedside is the chair. And he said, what you do is when you're talking to the patient, rather than standing, as we just heard on one foot on the way out, is to sit in the chair. And when you sit in that chair, you are giving a very important message. And we don't have chairs at the bedside. But perhaps that's one of the things that we need when we have our medical students doing their histories and they're using the computers and they're not even looking at the patients. So I go back to the old story of the bedside chair and how important that is in clinical care.
1: The bedside chair, Dr. Wenger, it's funny you should mention that at our residency over at Johns Hopkins, it was a project during my chief year where they began putting chairs on a rack in every patient room to encourage the whole team to sit down and share those moments with the patient at eye level. I used to ask my interns in their one liner as a first data point to include a hobby. So it wasn't, oh, the MR in bed 11 is so-and-so today. It's, oh, miss so-and-so who enjoys fishing with her grandchild who happens to have MR and so on and so forth. Because as we're learning, it's so important to get to know the person before their disease. Dr. Hayes, when you were introducing Dr. Wenger, I heard you say that she is so important to women physicians and to women with cardiovascular disease. But I would say that you both are so important now to uh, cardio nerds like us everywhere. And as leaders in this field and our strongest advocates for women's cardiovascular health, what is your promise to Brandy, Thea, and Ellen and other women who have or are at risk for heart disease? Dr. Hayes.
2: So I'll start with responding to what they wanted to tell us. I will continue to try to listen better. And I always try that, but I think I can do better. I think that I'll continue to demand more of ourselves because Dr. Wang and I have both seen such change in this field on sort of fundamental things and not to feed into the dogma. So that means improving the science and educating. I think the other big thing is being a voice. And this is something for the cardio nerds as well. I recognize that I have privilege and power. I didn't think that as a junior woman in a very big department, but I did. I had privilege and power as a medical student. Think about that. We are educated. We have many things. So use that privilege and power at whatever level that you are. And so I commit to continuing to use the privilege and power that I have over, you know, getting some gray hair, but recognize that everyone in the room can and the patient is often the person who has the least power. So increasing their power and recognizing their powerlessness is something that we can all do better because the outcomes will be better. And I just promise to follow the example of Dr. Winger, who does continue to wield her power and privilege in so many ways that it inspires me.
3: Let me just add one or two comments. First, To emphasize that the junior cardio nerds really are our promise for the future, because you are the ones who will continue the journey that we have started. And we are very dependent on your not only doing, but leading. And perhaps this relates to what my leadership style has always been. I have always led bottom up rather than top down so that I hope that people get inspired by the passion and then take off and do what inspires them. I think Women Heart represents the best in what we have to offer. And that is women educating, supporting, and advocating for women. But what I hope we will develop with the junior cardio nerds, and this involves both the women and the men who are their colleagues, and that is the promotion of women as leaders, and that women should see themselves as leaders. And then as leaders, that I would hope that all of the junior cardio nerds, both the women and the men, will target what they are doing with education, with heart health education at the most vulnerable in our population. And those are the women, and in particular, the young Black, Hispanic, and Native American women. Those are the vulnerables among the cardiology community. And we, as practicing cardiologists at all levels, have the responsibility to see that this vulnerable population gets the information, gets the access to care, and gets the treatment that will allow them to share in the benefits that we are promised as a nation.
0: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Wanger, for that. And we at the Cardi Nerds do take on, with humility, the great mantle that you're passing to us to, again, listen to our patients and promote, advocate, and investigate And maybe one day help legislate like you do. We are just so grateful. And to Brandy, Thea, and Ellen, your stories are just real priceless gems for us to really conceptualize and understand and really grow and mature in the way that we practice as clinicians. And so we're just so grateful for you all coming on the show today and really inspiring us and definitely our listeners. So thank you all. This has been a real treat.
3: Bye, everyone. Have a good Sunday. Thank you. Thank you. I love you all.
7: <laughs> Thank you to the Cardio Nerds for this opportunity to introduce all of you to Women Heart. Hello, I'm Selena Gora and I am the CEO of Women Heart and I'd like to take a moment to share with you a little bit about our history, our mission, and our programs. WomenHeart's mission is to support, educate, and advocate for women living with and at risk of heart disease. We've spent the last 22 years advocating for better access to quality care for women, educating women so they can be their own best advocates when it really matters, and supporting women to thrive through their heart journeys. The organization was founded in 1999 by three women who each had an extremely frustrating experience in different corners of the country of being misdiagnosed or having their diagnosis delayed. Sadly, the disparities between men and women continue to plague our healthcare system today. Women are still being diagnosed far more often than men when they show up to the ER or other healthcare settings with the exact same symptoms. So just as we were important in 1999, we are even more important today Almost from the very beginning of Women Heart, Dr. Sharon Hayes and Dr. Nanette Wenger have been instrumental in putting the unique needs of women with heart disease on the map. And they've paved the way for new generations of cardiologists to research and put into clinical practice better and more appropriate protocols to diagnose, treat, and care for women to thrive with heart disease for the long term. Under the three pillars of support, education, and advocacy, Women Heart has a few signature programs. We have a strong sisterhood of volunteers that we lovingly call our Women Heart Champions, who have all been diagnosed with heart disease or have survived a heart event such as a heart attack. These champions, which now number around 1,000 across the country, have all been trained at the world-renowned Mayo Clinic to learn about heart disease, including getting to hold the medical devices that may be implanted in their systems, to learn how to provide support to women who are just beginning their own heart journeys. And perhaps my favorite part, they learn how to tell their stories so that others can draw meaningful and actionable lessons from their experiences. We've also just launched our Sister Match app on the Apple and Android app stores which will make it much easier to be paired with a heart sister who can provide one-on-one support during what may be a very scary and lonely journey. Women Heart has also pivoted to providing support groups virtually amidst the pandemic. This has allowed women to continue to receive support without leaving the safety and comfort of their homes. Under Educate, we ensure that the patient's voice is included in all arenas where women's heart health is being addressed. Our community educators provide firsthand knowledge about the ins and outs of living with heart disease. We also conduct a series we call Heart Talks, which educates women about heart disease and its relevance in everyday life. For example, we did a number of heart talks on heart disease and COVID-19 to address the fears and questions of our high-risk community. Finally, under Advocate, We work in concert with other heart disease organizations to ensure that the voice of women is part of any legislation being drafted on better access, quality, and lower costs for patients living with heart disease. We have a self-selected group of passionate champions who make up our advocacy core, who get extra training on how to use their voice and their stories to provide the human experience in tandem with the important policies being decided on. Along with the rest of the world, Women Heart is assessing how it can take the positives of our collective experience with the pandemic to channel it into expanding our reach, raising awareness, and saving more lives. As one champion put it, her doctor saved her heart and Women Heart saved her life. So thank you again. And if you or someone you know is interested in joining Women Heart as a champion or in making a donation to support our work, please go to womenheart.org. And thank you.